Welcome to church, y'all. I don't have friends. I got family. So says Dom, right? So good morning this morning, family. Uh, let's shout out. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Amen. Welcome back to our journey together through the book of Titus. And this is our fourth week here in Paul's instructions to his friend Titus about how to set up the church on the island of Crete, or actually the churches. There wasn't just one, there were several on this island. Last week he was reminding him, him of the importance, uh, the, the key importance of remembering uh, that we strive uh, to care for all generations of people, and that interactions with different people of different ages takes a different tactic. And that's really important for us as a church as we too strive to be an intergenerational church where we have from uh, babies to all the way to old folks. Each age is unique and it's, each age is strategically placed in the body of God so that uh, uh, we can fully realize the goodness of Christ. Every age is important. Every age is a blessing. And so though we're different age groups, we have a unifying foundation all together. And that foundation we always say, is Jesus. And today we're going to look a little bit more about that foundation, reminding ourselves that that's the reason, or he's the reason for the season. All seasons, not just Christmas. So we found ourselves last in uh, Titus chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 11. It said, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. We saw that last week. We finished with this verse last week, but we are not finished with this verse this week. God's grace is, is God's... We, we throw that term around quite often in church, but God's grace means His unmerited favor. Sometimes accompanying a gift. We use it with like receiving the gift of Jesus Christ because God loves us so much. He gives us his favor and that favor is Jesus. And uh, it, my favorite picture of grace is actually not unmerited favor. That's the easy definition. But my favorite definition of grace, grace has this idea. It comes from this root that means to lean toward. And, and so grace has this idea of God leaning towards you, that he's looking at you not in condemnation, but eager anticipation of how much he loves you. Eagerly leaning towards you to say like, how could, I, how could I bless this child of mine? How could I be with this child of mine? Will they talk to me today? Will they, will they be with me today? God has this lean towards you and that causes him to do certain things. It causes him to love you. It is God's lean towards you that caused him to send Jesus to save you. It was all God's work all the time. He's looking at you and he's leaning towards you and he's loving you and he says, man, I want those people with me so I'm going to send Jesus. The grace of God has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. God's looking at you, loving you, even before you loved him and he's like, man, I love that person. I'm going to send Jesus because I want to save that person. Grace is what caused God to send Jesus to save us. Grace is the basis of all of our salvation. Relationship with God is only available because God chose to lean towards us, to love us even though we're unlovable, to forgive us even though you don't deserve it, and to walk with you even when you're obstinate, even when you thumb your nose, uh, your finger at God. Or... Grace is the sweetest word to a starving soul. God's gift of grace of salvation takes place in a single moment, but it's a moment that leads to an eternity of moments. Grace isn't just a moment. It's a moment that leads to a, a lifetime of moments. 
Grace is not for that moment when you say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord, Savior. That is grace in a moment. But it's so much more. Because many of us have accepted Jesus many years past, but God says, I have grace for you every single day. I'm still leaning in towards you. I'm still excited about what you're going to do. I'm still anticipating you're going to choose me this week, and and, and you're going to do awesome, and you're going to be amazing as, as we walk together. That's how God is looking at you. Now, one of the effects of grace is found in our next verse. The first effect was salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, it provided salvation. But then the next verse in Titus says this, it, now the it here, the antecedent to the pronoun it, is grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So it teaches us, declaring that God's grace also operates in the life of a believer. Not only does it save us, grace saves us, but then grace continues as it teaches us. But how is it that grace teaches us to live good? That's what our series has been about, this thread that we're looking, do good, do morally right. How is it that the the concept of grace or the idea that God's leaned towards you, that he loves you and that he provides uh, his son for you, how does that teach us? How is it that his unmerited favor teaches us to live morally correctly? The reason is, experience is the best teacher. To truly learn something, oftentimes we need to experience it. Now, I think I've shared this story one, one time before, but, but there was a time I was in my backyard and I was chopping down one of my trees. I didn't quite have the proper equipment. All I have is a hand axe. And so, uh, but I love hand axe. I love chopping trees. And so I'm chopping my tree. You know, it takes all day. I get up in the branches. It's a little one, boom, boom, boom. And they get thicker and thicker as you go down the tree. So you have to swing a little bit harder. My hand axe a little bit duller. I'm a little bit more tired. And I'm chopping on this tree. My kids are playing in the yard. They're not totally close, but they're, you know, maybe uh, 20 feet off, something like that. And I'm chopping on this tree as I'm hanging in this tree. And I'm getting tired. And, and I'm taking these big swings at this tree because I've got to knock this thing down. And the axe slips out of my hand. No, I didn't release my hand. I did right there, but I didn't do that. Like, I wasn't trying to throw it. <laughs> it slips out of my hand, and it goes flying right towards my kids. Kayla and Ethan were playing on the grass. And it goes like, I mean, I don't know if it was a foot or two feet. I would say like inches. You know, like it, it seemed like from my perspective, it was like inches and flew right by my son's head. And I was like, oh, my God, I have never been so scared and then so, like, angry at myself. So I yelled at the kids. <laughs> Why are you guys playing so close? What's wrong with you? You know, like, that's how parents do it when you're, like, overwhelmed. You yell at the kids. It was your fault. But, you know, like, I don't know. There was nothing else to do. So just yell at the kids. It seemed, like, appropriate. And they're like, man, they almost died. And I almost killed them. Can you imagine? I have this picture. It's like, <laughs> your kid's, like, dead with the axe. there. Like, what's wrong? Oh my gosh, it was so scary. I have never been so scared in my life. Not, my own life is like, kind of whatever, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go be with Jesus. But my kid, I was like, dude, I almost, like, uh, you know, now it's popular to throw those axes like at the like, fun place. It was like, almost like that. I was like, oh my gosh, I was so scared. But from that experience, I learned not to let my kids play around dangerous work. I learned to be more careful when I'm swinging my axe. I I learned to maybe get the proper equipment when you're trying to cut down a bigger tree. I learned not to do dangerous things while fatigued. 
That experience taught me a ton. So the experience of grace is the thing that teaches us. When we experience and truly live in and, and fully receive God's grace, it teaches us. Now, we don't always love this experiential word of Christianity, and, and kind of we tend to be a little bit headier as, as a, a group of Christians here. But the Bible says you've got to experience God. Grace is an experiential word. It's not a, it's not a th- logic word. Grace is saying, God, I want to be open to you loving me. God, I can't believe that you would lean towards me, that you, the God of the universe, who creates things with the word, you would, you would care about me. I can't even believe it, and so I just close it off, maybe. I, can't even, I, don't, even, I don't even know how I would want to experience that. That might be overwhelming. But once you experience grace, once you open yourself up and say, God, I, I want to receive your love. I, I, I want to experience you, not just for salvation, but I want to know you, the God of the universe. Once you experience grace, it changes you. It teaches you. And it's, it's not a hard class, and you don't have to study for it. You've just experienced it. And so it alters things. It teaches it teaches you what to do. It teaches you how to live or, or how to love. It teaches us our worth. It tells us our value. It, it, it shows us about God and his character. But it also teaches us what doesn't belong in our lives, in our newfound reality. The experience of grace teaches us that we don't benefit from evil or sin, that, that God maybe has it right when he tells you not to sin. It's not because he doesn't want you to have fun. It's because he actually likes you. You're playing near the guy swinging the axe, and you should probably back away. Grace puts ungodliness and worldly lust in our past. It teaches us to renounce those things. Not only just avoid them, but to say, I'm going to reject those completely. Teaching speaks of the entire training process of of learning and encouragement and correction and discipline. Grace is a teacher in every aspect of our development. It has to be. The experience of grace is why I say no to some things. The experience of grace is why I say yes to love. The experience of grace is say why, why I'm going to do this job that I'm doing because the experience of grace. It teaches me in all areas of life, the do's and the don'ts, the, the how to love and, and who maybe to back away from because they're not healthy for me. In a world where we're encouraged to say yes to to our every whim and desire and every impulse, the reality of our faith can be demonstrated by what we're willing to say no to. That the world might not be willing to say no to, but I'm willing to say no to because I've experienced grace. We want to live self-controlled. The Bible is just talking about that in regard to ourselves because of God's love for us. Would we pull that verse up? That's how it's ending right there. Grace teaches us to say no to those worldly passions, to, say, to live self-controlled lives because, because of God's love for me. And then to live upright or righteously in regard to God because of what he's given us, again, grace. And the grace teaches us how to live in this present age. Grace is the gift for now. Taken together, we see that the fear of the legalist is that if I preach grace, then people will think that it's okay to sin. 
That's the fear of the legalist, right? Honestly. That if, if I receive grace and I tell people that it's unmerited favor and God loves you no matter what and you're going to go to heaven if you accept Jesus and it doesn't matter what you do, the legalist fear is then everyone will go like, like go crazy, right? And do all the possible sinful things. But, but we see if preaching grace is right and the experience of grace is true, then, then it will not produce Christians who are indifferent to sin and obedience. Rather, it will produce Christians who absolutely will obey, but not because they have to and not because they will earn God's favor, love, or trust, but because they've experienced God and now they want to. And in fact, we're compelled to, but internally, not externally compelled by some sort of standard that you have to reach, otherwise God won't like you or something like that. See, the experience of grace is the key moment. Not living good, doing good, praying more, all this kind of stuff. That, those things are all secondary. The experience of grace will teach us. That's the teacher. That's the cause. That's the catalyst. That's the thing that changes us. Not us just trying to be better people. And not trying to do good because you want to do good. And if, if that's what you're taking away from this series, then I've absolutely failed you as a teacher of the Bible because that is not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching as you experience grace, the result of that, grace will teach you to say no to ungodliness. Not you figuring out how to stop your pornography problem. Your pornography problem is because you're not near to grace. The moment you start experiencing God and you're walking with God and, and Jesus is all in you, guess what? You're not clicking on the pornography when, you, when you're in Bible study, you don't, most people don't have their Bible out reading and praising, and they pull out their phone and watch some pornography as they're reading the Bible. It's incongruous. It won't work. And, you know, that's not how, how anyone ever navigates their pornography addiction. Or whatever sin. It doesn't have to be that one. We all have them. The answer, the teacher, the place I need to learn from isn't just to do better myself. Isn't just to study harder or buck down, or it's to experience grace, to go find yourself back in the love of God and in His presence. And as you experience that presence, He teaches you. Grace teaches you. We learn from grace in the next verse here while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, grace will teach us. How, when does it teach us? Well, it teaches us while we're waiting for God to return. Grace teaches us to expect and prepare for this blessed hope. The hope is not only, or not even primarily, heaven or glory, and that we get to live forever. Those things are cool. But the, the, the primary hope is that we get to actually see Jesus himself face to face. And we have a relationship with him now that, that's sort of a long-distance relationship, it feels like sometimes. But we'll have a face-to-face -face relationship and that's the hope that we're waiting for. The, the hope that is we get to meet closer than ever and be with Jesus in eternity. Wait for indicates Christians should live in active expectation of the return of Jesus. The one who made grace tangibly a reality. See, Jesus is grace. When he comes down, so God could tell you, I love you, I care about you, I love you, I care about you. But Jesus is the tangible reality of grace. When he comes to the earth, he chooses to, to exit heaven and, and release for a moment or veil for a moment his godness and become a fully human to die for humans. That's, that's grace in reality. 
That's what grace looks like. God says, I love you enough to experience this hell on earth and a horrible death and torture because I love you. That's what grace looks like. And we're told to wait for this kind of things. But waiting is tough. Waiting is really hard, which is why I think God gave us something to do while we're waiting. He says, while you're waiting for this hope, how about live in this grace and it's going to teach you to do these kind of things. And I was thinking about like uh, parenting. Waiting for your kid to be born or to be adopted, like that's the hardest wait period in, in life. I mean, kids are hard to have after they're born and it's a different hard, but, but waiting for them, that sort of anticipation, you get so antsy, like, oh, I can't wait till they're here, you know? And so, so uh, at least you have some things to do as you're waiting for the baby, right? You could put the room together, like you got to maybe take some classes or, or read too many baby books so you can be like all intense with your wife or whatever, you know? Like, oh, wait, that's just maybe me. Uh, if you're adopting, you have mountains of paperwork to fill out, and so it kind of keeps you busy, right? You've got something to do while you're waiting, and, and uh, you might as well use that time wisely. And I wonder if the same is not true with Jesus. As we're waiting for him, God says, okay, well, as you're waiting, I got something for you. I want to start to refine you out. I want, to, I want you to live and experience my grace. And, and as you're waiting for Jesus, you've got some stuff to do. You've got some work to do together, you and I, as you receive my love. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peel some things off of you. And I'm going to add some things on to you because I want you to be ready, beautiful, and amazing when you meet with Jesus. And so the wait is worth it because the payoff is so awesome, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's continued in the next verse. It says this, who, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So every word of this description of Jesus' work is important. So look at how it says, uh, Jesus gave, which means he did it voluntarily. So Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm choosing to come to you. You didn't pick me first. He says, I came to you. I gave you something. And what did he give? It made it personal. I gave myself to you. I didn't give you like a, I don't know if you have some people that maybe you don't like as much, and so you just send them a card, right? You don't, you don't try to meet them up for lunch or whatever. Or maybe you have a relative that you just send flowers to. You don't ever actually go visit them, you know? And so you can just kind of send them something. But Jesus says, I came myself. It's personal for me, Jesus says. I gave myself for us. And it's not only personal on God's side, now it's personal on my side. That, that God says, I, I, I'm going to come freely, willingly to meet with you because I think you're valuable, because I love you, because you matter to me. And, and that's all of you all as well as the recipients of this letter. Gave himself personal, did it for us. The heart of God of grace was to redeem us. So he came to gave himself to redeem us. Now, redemption, this is like the third or fourth time we've gotten a slavery word. We've heard bond slave. We've heard about actual slaves, how they should act in, in their uh, environment. And redemption is a slave word. Redemption is a word that means to buy someone back out of the bond slavery that they sold themselves into. So that, that's this idea of a redemption is like you sold yourself as a, as a slave to and we're talking uh, spiritually, you sold yourself as a slave to sin. And Jesus buys you back. He pays that price that, that it would cost to buy you out of that slavery. That's what redemption means. 
So he gave himself, so it, it, the, the price wasn't 50 bucks or 1,000 bucks. The price was himself. So Jesus says, I lean towards you. I love you enough that I'm going to come and give myself to buy you out of your contract of this bond slavery to sin. See, that's why grace changes things. Because Jesus said, I came to buy you out of that. And if you understand that Jesus said, I, I paid this price, so you are no longer slaves to what? Slaves to sin. Slaves to the world. Slaves to the, the ideas that, that navigate apart from God. He says, I saved you from those things. I paid you out of that so that you could be a people that are good and pure and love me. That's why he did it. Yes, redeeming you from hell but also redeeming every one of your days. Know that, that each new day is redeemed for God's good. I think as Christians, we think like our redemption process was that moment we accepted Jesus Christ, right? That was our grace moment. That was our redemption. And boom, we're done. Now we're just going to kind of navigate our life. But, but the redemption is for today too. God's lean is for you right now also. It doesn't matter your yesterday. He wants to redeem your today. And again, tomorrow when you wake up, he wants to redeem that day as well. You were bought out of slavery of sin and you were purchased for his service. Purify means Jesus provided not only for the forgiveness of sins and justification, but also for our changing, for our sanctification, for our, our shaping into the likeness of him to deliver us from being enemies who are clinging to the world's evil into a people who embrace God's good. Purify people who are eager to do what is good. I mean, that's what we've been talking about this last month here. Not people who acquiesce to doing good or begrudgingly do good because we're supposed to or whatever. But someone who has experienced grace is going to be someone who is eager to do good. Man, I can't wait to choose God again. Because it's so good when I do. And I love him so much. Not because I am good. Because he has overwhelmingly loved me. He paid me at least to a 10 to 1 ratio. Probably an infinity to 1 ratio. But I can't even calculate infinity. So I'll go with 10 or 100 to 1 ratio. That's how much more he loved me than I love him. And so I am eager to do good. As I experience grace. When I go out and I chop some wood with my hand axe. I don't begrudgingly swing, not wildly, right? I don't begrudgingly, fine, I'll be safe, I guess. No, I, I am eager to have my kids not stand 20 feet away from me when I'm swinging an axe. I am eager to sharpen my axe so it works a little bit better. I'm eager, actually, I bought a chainsaw, so I don't have that. That's way safer, right? I really did. I bought a chainsaw now, so... Way safer. Even my daughter could use the chainsaw because that's safe too. So yeah, she cut down a little bit of the trees with it. With it. So, but but I'm eager to do that. I'm not like, oh, dude, man, I really love swinging that axe wildly, man. That was so awesome when it went right by his head. It wasn't. Experience taught me that I want to be eager to do something different than the thing that was I, I was messing up with, and that's how grace works. Then Paul tells his friend Titus, these, these then are the things that you should teach. You've got to encourage and rebuke with all authority. So Titus and every one of God's messengers of grace is directed to do three things, to teach, to encourage, and to rebuke with all authority the message that God wants you to do good. 
And those are the three things that cause movement in our lives. So the three things we try to do whenever, whenever I share God's word with you. That's what I'm hoping will happen. Maybe you never knew something, so teaching helps. Maybe, oh my gosh, I never knew that about grace, or I never knew that God leaned towards me and that he loves me that much. And so maybe teaching helps you and changes you. But, but maybe, maybe you know stuff, but you're kind of scared to do it. Maybe you're scared to fail, or you're scared what it'll be like at work, or you, know, you get a little insecure about yourself, and maybe, I don't feel like I'm worth it, and I know you're saying God loves me, but I don't feel like God's loving me. And so, so you don't maybe need teaching about it because you know about it, but you might need encouraging. Maybe the word for you today is that God's saying, oh, no, I do love you. And I know exactly who you are. And I created that, and I love it. And some of you, maybe you, you're not really scared, and you do know all these things, and maybe you've just been making excuses for X, Y, or Z in your life, and maybe you just need a rebuke. <laughs> you say, hey, stop doing those things. God don't want that in your life. You see, these are the three things that cause movement in our life, teaching, encouraging, and rebuking. And Titus is called to use various methods to help encourage different people in their different walks in life so that they can draw nearer to God because that's his desire for them. Then he says, don't let anyone despise you. So telling Titus again, like, you've got to teach with authority and stuff, but don't do it in a way where you're a jerk. Right? This comes with that, that, you know, he said, teach, encourage, rebuke, and the next sentence is, but don't let them despise you. That means, like, Titus, don't be a punk. Don't be a jerk. Don't heavy hand people. Don't, don't, don't push them away from God. Don't, don't get caught up all in yourself and the things that you want to do. Don't, don't become despisable. And I worry sometimes Christians become despisable because, well, I'm so much better than them. Or like, oh, I don't sin or whatever, you know. Don't become despisable. You too, me too. So let's make that happen. Then he gives the last few tips for for Titus, he says this, remind the people to be subject to their rulers and the authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. We've heard this word like now 15 times in Titus. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. Leave this section up for a second, uh, tech team. The emphasis in Greek is to, uh, of remind, it's in the pre- present progressive, so it's saying like, uh, keep on reminding yourself. Not just a one-time like reminder. That's why we do communion every week because like, I don't know about you, but I forget stuff fast. You know, my, the older I get, the more stuff and the faster I forget it, right? So my wife and I remind each other back and forth to help each other as we're reminding. And so this says, keep on reminding people. Titus was to constantly remind the Christians under his care to show proper respect and humility to the authorities. Uh, especially, we've been talking about these people of Crete. They were not highbrow intellects. They weren't like sensitive people. They're kind of jerks, lazy, right? Gluttons. We talked about that earlier. And so in light of their character, he's like, hey, make sure that they're listening to the authorities. And you got, we sometimes think, well, that maybe have been easier for them. But remember who their authorities are, Paul's writing. These are people who have conquered the nation of Israel. So they're a conquered people. And the conquerors are making the laws. And then they make a law that it's illegal to be Christian. It's actually a death penalty if you become a Christian. And do you know what Paul says? Rebellion! No, he says, he says, obey the law. So, so here's how the Christians did it. Okay, I'm going to obey the law. Rome, I became a Christian. They say, don't say that. Why, what will happen? We'll kill you. Hmm. Okay, well, Rome, I became a Christian. Because <laughs> I don't lie. <laughs> 
They say, don't say that. And in multiple accounts, they'll say, I'll give you three chances. Third, third strike, you're out. That was even before baseball. They say, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to kill you. And they literally kill them. And so they took it seriously. They, they obeyed a government that was absolutely opposed to Christianity. And so keep that in mind next time we're like, hey, let's storm the Capitol on January 6th or whatever. You know, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, right? Like maybe, maybe we don't need to worry about that. Let's spend our time with Jesus following his law, his rule, his love, his life, and respect the authority. That doesn't mean they, you do what they say to do. If they tell you to do something sinful and the consequence is death, you say, I'm going with death then because <laughs> I'm going to obey you up until the point where God tells me to do something separate. And then I'm still going to obey God, but if the penalty from you is I lose my business, I lose my life, I lose my freedom, then I'm going to take that penalty because I'm going to follow after God. Well, that's pretty crazy, right? And he says, slander no one, be peaceable, considerate and gentle to all. This is, not, this is Christ, uh, distinct Christian kindness, not just cordial behavior. It's not just be like, oh, be kind to people or whatever. It's because Jesus loves you. Go the extra step to care about people. Be gentle toward everyone. And I think that we need this so bad today. Strong Christians who are willing to be gentle, not weak. Gentle is power under control. That's what gentle means. That's the definition of biblical gentle. Power under control. That's what Christianity needs. Gentle to everyone. Gentle to someone I disagree with. Gentle to my enemies. Gentle to jerks or mean people or harmful folks or gentle to my own family. Gentle to everyone. And so now we're sitting through all this and you're like, ah, oh, Pastor Sam, this is like all too much. I got obedient, gentle. There's like just way too many things. I can't handle all these things. I can't do all this good that you're asking me to do. Like all the Bible, it has all this kind of stuff that seems so good and I kind of want to do it, but it's just too much. I'm not, I can't really do it. And I agree, fully agree. You were never meant to handle it without grace without God's goodness first. And you've got to dive into that. You've got you've to imbibe that. You've got to suck that in first. Soak in His grace. Open yourself to the experience of grace and grace will teach you how to do good. He's just describing what it will look like when you experience grace. What will that good like? It's going to look kind of like these things we're talking about. And it's not that you have to do more. I do not want you to try to do more good. I don't want you to try to be a better person. If that's what you're hearing, then I, I'm totally not saying it right, and I'm sorry. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying experience grace. Walk in it, live in it, soak in it. Let it, let it permeate all of you and out of that the result of that when you do it's going to look like this and it's way better and it's not because you have to do it now oh, I miss throwing axes at kids it's not that I don't I, I've never had a moment where I cared about not throwing my axe towards my kids 
And when I walk in grace, there is not a moment that I wished I had lived the other life or I wished I had sinned more. I wished I had just gone out and had other illicitous relationships or whatever else. I wished I had cheated on my taxes a little more. Never once. Not when I experience grace. Experience grace, and that experience will teach you God's good path. So I want to invite you right now to step into that with me. To really just drink in the goodness of God. And, and it's weird because it's this metaphysical thing. Right? There's not something you can do like, okay, right now, God, I'm going to receive your grace. Here it is. I'm right there. Can you put that in my hand right here, God? And it's different for everyone. But I want, you to, I want to invite you and give you the space to say, God, I'm at church. I want to experience your grace this morning. God, are you really leaning towards me? God, are, are you really looking at me with eager anticipation because you love me so much right now, hit, sitting right here? Like, who am I? I? I'm a tiny ant on a dust speck of a planet in trillions of planets. But maybe, just maybe, if you will open yourself up, if you'll just say, God, I don't know how to do it. It's been a while since I experienced you. Maybe I never have. Or maybe I did, but now it's 15 years past. But would you allow grace to become your tutor? Would you allow grace to be your guide? Would you allow grace to be the power to follow God? And be reminded that grace is Jesus' love for you, himself, his provision for you, his delight of you. Now right now, you don't have to do anything. He loves you, he delights in you. He wants to be with you right now. I mean, you came to church, so, so you want to be with Him. Open your heart just today and say, God, I, I just want to receive your grace again. Receive it again, maybe for the first time, but maybe for the thousandth time. God, I need you. I want to receive you. And the goodness that comes from that.